From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made in Southern California in 2009. Investigative journalist and author Catherine Stewart recounts what happened in her book. An older couple from a neighboring town tried to set up a Bible club at the elementary school attended by Catherine's daughter. They wanted to use school space because they wanted the young children to assume their message was endorsed by the school. Catherine writes that their messages included telling five-year-olds that they would burn in hell for eternity if they did not adopt evangelical Christianity. And for a short while, at least, Catherine seemed amused at the sight of it. After all, this was Southern California. This was 2009. This was not going to happen. But then she adds this line about the older couple's actions, quote, In my eyes, they came out of the American past, not the future. I was quite wrong about that, end quote. You might have read about Catherine's investigation in her book, The Good News Club. Her newest book is called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. While we can laugh at fictional shows like The Righteous Gemstones, the reality is, in Catherine's view, far more sinister. She writes about concepts like spiritual warfare, the weaponization of certain social issues. And I have been wondering, after the fall of Roe v. Wade last year, where do journalists like Catherine see this movement going next? Her book provides some answers, and she's coming to Rochester to talk about it. The organizers of the event also organized against the proposed Rochester hosting of an event that you might have heard about, I think it was last year. It was called the Reawaken America Tour, and there was quite an opposition to that, and our guests were part of that. This time, they're putting together a group to discuss the kinds of issues that Catherine Stewart regularly covers. If you're interested in the event, We'll tell you more about it coming up. And our guests this hour include, on the line with us, Catherine Stewart, investigative journalist and author of The Power Worshippers. Catherine, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's great to speak with you today. On the line with us as well, Reverend Rebecca Seegers, pastor and head of staff at Third Presbyterian Church in Rochester. Reverend, thanks for making time. Glad to be here. And in studio with us, Reverend Jimmy Reeder is a retired minister, still an active blogger, and part of Rock Q, and we'll talk about that in a second. Reverend, thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. Also with us is Monica Gabel, Director of Community Relations at the Jewish Federation of Greater Rochester. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much. And welcome to Lori Mahoney, community organizer and activist at Elder Third Presbyterian Church, co-chair of Third Presbyterian's Anti-Racism Task Group, co-chair of Rochester Clergy and Community United, board member of Family Promise. That's formerly Rain. Have I missed anything? <laughs> oh, dear. Thank you. Thank you for being here. By the way, when we say Rock Q, it's Rock, R-O-C, and then C-C-U, Rochester Clergy and Community United. Um, Reverend Reader, you reached out to me earlier this week, um, and I know this organization is very important to you. I want to ask our guests before we kind of jump in with Catherine here what Rock U is and what your mission is. Go ahead. Uh, well, early last summer when some of us learned that the Reawaken America Tour was going to be hosted here in uh, Rochester, some of us, we just formed an ad hoc group, uh, which is now known as Rock U. Then we didn't have a name. We just wanted to... Uh, we wanted to keep that from happening in Rochester, which it did, but then it went to Batavia, so that's what happened. More about it <laughs> in, later. In, yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. that is what, what happened. Um, Monica, how do you see the work of Rock U, and how does it relate to the work that you do? Well, so my work as um, community relations involves interfaith community work and fighting anti-Jewish hate. So RACU is a natural fit for both Jewish community relations and, I should say, the Levine Center to End Hate, because both are housed at the Jewish Federation of Rochester. Okay. And, uh, Laurie, how do you see the work of RACU? Well, as a Rochesterian, um, we, are, we are secular, we are religious leaders, but we are united together to challenge this rise in hatred. Um, and it's just happening. And so the time is is now. We're trying to get our feet. We're doing some educational things, but we absolutely oppose violence, hatred, division, discrimination. You know, we we, we are stand for and stand with others for a very diverse Rochester community that's welcoming and inclusive. Mm -hmm. Reverend Seegers, do you want to add to that? Um, I think the only thing that I would add to that is one of the most exciting pieces to me about Rock U is the active opposition to hatred, which means that we have to stand in a positive light. You can't 
fight uh, hate with hate in the immortal words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but only with love. And so as we've really wrestled with how to oppose the hate that we see arising around the country, this event with Catherine has been one in which we, we plan to educate and enlighten and work toward that hopeful future together. Uh, the list of people who are working together with RACU is longer than even um, this rather large panel today. It includes people like um, Rabbi Stein, who's been on this program a number of times, from Temple Birth Kodesh, uh, Jill Paperno, who's, I think, out of town right now, mm-hmm. but uh, does a lot of work in this community. Um, and I, I should also say that we um, um, had hoped to be joined by Sarir Fazali today, the past president of the Islamic Center of Rochester. He has a work obligation right now, so that may take him away from it. But this is a coalition that crosses um, over a, a lot of um, different faiths and boundaries. And um, the event coming up, Reverend Reader, uh, what do you want people to know about what's coming up with Catherine Stewart? Uh, Catherine Stewart will be here in person on Sunday, March 12th, 5 p.m. at the Third Presbyterian Church. Uh, it's a it's free event, but people do need to register, and we can give that to you later or put it online, whatever is helpful. Yeah, we'll attach it to this program as we post it later today, wxxinews.org slash connections. Catherine, I, I don't know if um, back in 2009 you would have said that you were the likely candidate to write the books that you've written. Um, can you describe a little bit about what has um, given you the opening to really kind of dive in and understand this movement? What really struck me back in 2009 was that these um, clubs, after-school Bible clubs that were uh, confusing very young children, children who are too young to read, um, into believing that this one particular form of religion was endorsed by the school, um, I, I sort of wondered how it was legal and constitutional given the separation of church and state. So, you know, because public schools, in order to function effectively in a society as diverse as ours, need to remain non-sectarian, neither promoting nor denigrating any form of religion. They need to be uh, comfortable for all families to send their kids. But here is this one organization establishing these um, groups in public elementary schools, deceiving very little kids into thinking that the religion of the club was endorsed by the school. And I just thought... Um, you know, how is this legal? So I started to research the legal um, strategists that had allowed, had sort of cleared the way for putting these, um, you know, hyper-sectarian groups in public elementary schools. We're not talking about high schools. We're talking about, you know, K through 5 and, um, and confusing these little kids. And once I recognized that there was a very well-funded, coordinated legal movement uh, that had done this, I started to look into other things they'd done, and I saw a broader attack on public education um, that they were waging as one part of a larger attack on America as a modern constitutional pluralistic democracy. And so how does that manifest today? Well, the religious nationalism that we see affects, uh, you know, it's sort of impossible to ignore post-January 6th, of course, since we all saw the religious signage and heard the rioters invoking um, Jesus and praying in the Capitol building, even as they're desecrating it. So it's it's sort of um, in much more, people are much more conscious of it. Uh, some of the most recent Supreme Court decisions have made others more conscious of it. But it affects every aspect of our life in a way from our schools to our healthcare system, from our politics um, to our national security. I think about somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who called for, uh, recently just called for a, a civil war. She said, you know, she's calling for uh, people who don't get everything they want to, with, you know, break up the union. And uh, rather than being held to account by Republican leaders, you just think, where is this leadership? They instead, she's been given a position on Homeland Security. How is calling for the breakup of our of our union uh, and the destruction of our democracy in any way helpful to our national security? So this is a movement that has, um, I think it's very poorly uh, understood still. I think a lot of people think about it as preoccupied with um, certain, you know, hot button issues in the so-called culture wars. 
but when you go to the gatherings of this movement, that's how I've done a lot of my research over the past 15 years. I go to right-wing strategy meetings and gatherings and um, you know policy gatherings, and I you know, read what uh, its leaders write. I, I you know, listen to what they have to say to one another when they're talking in the spaces that they share. This is not just about you know a few culture war issues. This is about a broad agenda that affects. Um, you know, social policy, economic policy, foreign policy, and certainly has affected our court. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene specifically invoked her desire to see a, quote, national divorce. So I think it is logical to see that as, well, I mean, some kind of secession, perhaps civil war. I don't know if it is a peaceful separation of whatever. Red and blue states, which is an absurd um, sort of way to divide a country that is increasingly red in rural areas and uh, and, and blue and less so. But what, whatever. I, what I want to ask you, Catherine, about that is um, last week I had a chance to talk to Congressman Joe Morelli on the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we were talking about um, whether there's truly a bipartisan support for Ukraine going forward, given some of the rhetoric from some Republican members of Congress. And what he said was that he does still believe that the support is bipartisan, that there are some voices that he thinks are fringier, that they get attention, but they're not taken seriously. He said what it's important to remember about Marjorie Taylor Greene, this is what Congressman Morelli said, is you know, she's not really taken seriously. Even her Republican colleagues roll their eyes. And so that may be true as far as it goes, but there is real sort of capital in um, the amplification of, of this kind of voice. She knows how to be amplified. She's all over the place. How do we evaluate how much power someone holds when members of Congress say, look, nobody really takes her seriously here, but she's everywhere. And, and it appears that when you travel to these events, whether it's um, uh, Reawaken America or otherwise, she does seem to hold sway. Well, we have to start with the fact that this kind of paranoid rant that she went on, because that's what it is, is really politically effective for her and others who have gone on said similar kinds of extreme statements. She's made a career out of it, and we shouldn't think that this is in any way going to represent a setback for her. It's going to give her more attention. So, uh, you know, a significant portion of the American public has been inculcated in this kind of propaganda and paranoia. Um, and, you know, we have to think about how we can prevent people from falling for this kind of propaganda. But we, you know, you can say, you know, that Republicans dismiss her, but at the same time, the Republican Party overall did not push back on the conspiracism that, uh, that Trump promoted and that Christian nationalist or religious nationalist networks promoted. In fact, if you look at some of the statistics about what percentage of um, Republican voters believe in the lie of the stolen election, it's a, a, a huge number. And this kind of conspiracism was promoted not only by certain Republican politicians, but also through the networks of, of religious nationalism, of Christian nationalism. So religious Christian nationalism is really a, a leadership-driven movement that has overtaken the Republican Party. I think some people don't, they, they think that many of these, you know, re Republican leaders or Republican politicians are the ones who are in charge, but their positions have been pushed to the right by um, organi the organizations that are part of this network. I've uh, been to gatherings, for instance, of Students for Life of America or the National Pro-Life Summit, where some of the leaders of that organization will say, well, you know, we're going to put a lot of pressure on these Republican politicians who call themselves pro-life, but they're not endorsing the, you know, the, the policy proposals that we want them to do. And if they refuse to do it, we'll primary them. So I think part of the reason the Republican Party's been drawn so far off to the right is because of gerrymandering. A lot of Republican politicians mm -hmm. will never run against a Democrat. So the only way they can lose an election is by not, you know, by allowing someone to run to the right of them. And so, you know, listen, years ago, think about it. There used to be uh, Democrats who were anti-abortion. You had Republicans who were pro-choice. And these, you know, you just don't have that anymore. You sort of have a kind of, I don't think, to be honest, that uh, Democrats have moved all that much. And I don't think the center-right has moved all that much. But I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a far right. Marjorie Taylor Greene and many others are on it. 
and it's, you know, wandered off there and jumped off, off the diving board. How do you define religious nationalism, and how do you define spiritual warfare? Those are terms that you've used. Okay, great. Well, let's start with uh, religious nationalism. It's not Christianity. It's not the whole of Christianity, and it's not a religion. It's a political phenomenon that involves the exploitation of religion for political purposes. So I think of it as combining two different kinds of things. On the one hand, it's a set of ideas, an ideology, um, the idea that America was founded as a so-called Christian nation, that everything, um, you know, in their definition of what Christianity means um, and all of its cultural implications, and, and they say that all of our problems stem from the fact that we've forsaken this supposed heritage of that founding. But on the other hand, it's a political movement, an organized quest for power. Um, uh, that ideology is really a tool for that, you know, to turn, um, to, you know, for, for that leadership-driven movement. And that movement consists of a number of organizations that we can group into categories. Um, I'm going to name some features of that infrastructure. There are right-wing policy groups like the Family Research Council, the American Family Association, and Focus on the Family. You have think tanks such as the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research or Heritage Foundation with its activist arm and there's a, a vast sort of legal sphere, like the uh, Federalist Society, which grooms and promotes candidates for uh, judicial appointments and things like that. And the Alliance Defending Freedom, which has an annual operating budget that exceeds $100 million in the last fiscal year. And you've got Liberty Council, First Liberty Institute. These organizations work on sort of transforming the courts because they know that a lot of the policies that they want are really unpopular with the public but they know if they get the courts, they can get these policies passed and, and shape the country in all these different ways. Um, so um, then you sort of have a far-right messaging sphere that exploits cultural conflict, um, cultivates grievance and promotes disinformation and conspiracism. Um, you know, some people might question very legitimately whether everyone who works for these organizations or supports these organizations could be called quote, a Christian nationalist, and absolutely not. But what we can say is that these organizations are lending support to a Christian nationalist agenda, like religious nationalism and authoritarian, and authoritarianism are, um, they're political pathologies that afflict political systems, not just theories embraced by millions of supporters. I'm trying to squeeze in a lot with Catherine because her time <laughs> is short, and you're gonna, if you're going to want to see more, you're going to have to see her on Sunday, March 12th in Rochester. Um, on the subject of, uh, of goals politically, um, it, it's probably much too narrow. I'm sure it's much too narrow to say, well, this was all about Roe. Although I think, you know, for some people uh, who sort of affiliate themselves with the religious right um, with, in, in good faith, like intellectually, honestly, uh, it's been a lot about Roe. It's been a lot of abortion has been a big issue on the political right for a long time. And so they... Um, they they Look, caught the car, they got it. And so how do you see th th that story in the context of this movement and then how how they sort of pivot from that and where they go next, Catherine? They're just getting started. I mean, you know, to say it's all about Roe is um, – look, the religious right knows very well if you can get people to vote on a few simple issues or one issue, you can turn them into single-issue voters, you can control their vote. So over time, listen, remember back when Barry Goldwater was uh, supported abortion rights early in his career? Remember when Ronald Reagan uh, signed the most liberal abortion uh, bill into law in 1967? Remember when Betty Ford held the passage of Roe versus Wade as a great, great decision? There used to be approach most Republican politicians, I'm sorry, most Republican Protestants at the time that Roe versus Wade passed supported it. The Southern Baptist Convention passed resolutions in 1971 and 1974 supporting uh, uh, liberalization of abortion laws. So at the time, abortion was seen as more of a Catholic issue, not a, a, a Protestant issue. But over time, People like Phyllis Schlafly, uh, Paul Weirich, Alan Dye, and some others who are uh, figures who are affiliated with an organization called the New Right. They call themselves the New Right. They they were concerned about a broad range of issues, not just about abortion. They felt the Republican Party had gone uh, too liberal, uh, too soft on communism. 
they were very concerned about the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement. They were extremely concerned about uh, desegregation, uh, the, the fact that the IRS was starting to look at segregated religious schools in the South and, and schools affiliated with people like Bob Jones and saying, why are we offering tax subsidies for, for segregation? And um, they just felt like the culture was going too liberal. They were, um, you know, offended by the rise of liberal theologians like Paul Tillich and uh, Niebuhr. And so they knew they needed an issue to coalesce their new movement. And um, people, folks who like um, uh, folks who've been in on those those conversations have written about this. They sort of went down a list of issues to try and find the issue that could unite their movement and Roe was not uh, their first choice, uh, but when they got down to it, it's an identity issue. It has to do with sexuality, gender order, and it was like a light bulb went off, and they were like, huh, that could work. So over time, they purged pro-choice voices from the Republican Party. Phyllis Schlafly actually wrote a really terrific book about that. It's, a, it's titled How the Republican Party Became Pro-Life. It wasn't pro-life. It was actually mixed, but they needed to get an issue they could get everybody on board with. And, and, and sometimes I think of those culture war issues like, you know, abortion, or now they're going for the sort of fake CRT stuff. You ever see those cat toys with that, that direct little red, like a laser on the ground, and the cat sort of jumps after the red laser? And, and meanwhile, they're not looking at this other stuff that's going on. If you can get, look, not everybody who cast their vote to end abortion can be called a Christian nationalist. Right. If you are allowing that one issue to control your vote, you are lending support to to a much broader agenda than you may you, than you may realize. Yeah, I, I hope it's clear that in my question on this particular issue, I I don't at all view anybody who opposes abortion as automatically a religious nationalist, a Christian nationalist, etc., or engaging in spiritual warfare. There's a lot of good faith out there on this, um, but, but I was more interested in sort of the context of this issue that has been um, sort of weaponized in this way in the wielding of power. You're going to learn more uh, on how Catherine sees these issues in the event coming up on March 12th if you want to attend. And before I, I let Reverend Seegers go as well, just about a minute, Reverend, um, you know, are you concerned about helping people sort of see that what, I, what Christianity means to you, I'm sure is very different than what it means to self-proclaimed Christian nationalist, but uh, are you concerned with the co-opting of the term Christian, Reverend? Evan, I think that absolutely is a concern, um, that that to be a Christian for me is to follow the the person of Jesus Christ who preached an inclusion and a love for all people and certainly did not preach a particularity around one uh, one government, one system of government. Uh, and so it, it is very disturbing to have found this, the, the name of my particular uh, faith tradition to have been co-opted by a group that has very particular and very different aims than I believe the, the leader of my tradition did. Um, obviously, there are always going to be differences in interpretation and that sort of thing, but I think this is much bigger and, and much different from those simple things. Reverend, I know your time is short as well. Reverend Rebecca Seeger is pastor and head of staff at Third Presbyterian Church in Rochester. Thank you for making time for the program today. Thank you, Evan. And our thanks as well to Catherine Stewart, who is off to uh, her next work event, but will be in Rochester Sunday, March 12th, if you want to attend, 5 p.m. at Third Presbyterian Church um, for an event on these and, and other related subjects. She's the author of the book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, among other books. She's an investigative journalist who has worked on these issues for a long time. And as I turn to our guests in studio, uh, our guests from a coalition really known as Rock U, Rochester Clergy and Community United. Um, I, I want to talk about how you go about having a productive discourse on this that sheds light and that doesn't sort of fall into the spiral. That's a, cause I, I know people are worried about this, and but so often what I see is people say, well, I'm going to do is I'm just going to dunk on somebody on social media, and that that will that will be my contribution. I don't think people articulate it quite that way, but I don't know anybody who's ever kind of changed their mind, Jimmy, who said, well, I got dunked on on social today, and I guess this notion of religious nationalism is real, and I've been sort of duped here, and I'm out. I mean, I don't see that. And so what, what, 
What is effective? What works, Reverend? I think it's really important to, uh, to, to talk at the level of values. What is it that we really believe about how the world works? What is our worldview? That's a common term used by the Christian right. Uh, they call it a biblical worldview, which is not, in my estimators, a biblical one. But it is about the fundamental values that we hold about life. And there's a, there's a fundamental split between the value set, so the worldview, if you will, of the new right or the Christian nationalists, and the values that I hold, for instance. Uh, fundamentally, it's the difference between um, authoritarianism or compassion and empathy. I mean, that's, that's simplistic. We can come back to it. But, but I time. don't think, Reverend, mm -hmm. that people who are involved in that movement would say, yes, I'm an authoritarian and you are empathetic. I don't think many people, I think they would say, no, we're about love. We're about God's love. We're about the love as we see it. Um, we're not authoritarians. You're the authoritarian. So, <laughs> so what do you do with that? that? That is a difficult one. I think it's important to invite people into a discussion. That is not to argue. So social media back and forth is not helpful. Even sitting down face to face with somebody, if you're just going back and forth, well, I think this, I think that, that's not helpful either. So to ask questions, to draw people out, to say, you know, here's how I see and uh, tell me more about what you think. I think that that kind of approach, whatever the context, is going to get us uh, far more in the right direction. Monica, Director of Community Relations at the Jewish Federation of Greater Rochester, how do you see this work? Yeah, I, just to follow up with what Jimmy was saying, I, I think it's important for people, if they are going to agree to sit down, which is a very difficult thing for people to do anymore, they're going to have to begin by sharing the story of who they are. So they really need to start with um, where they come from, who they come from. And then I think a discussion, a productive discussion, will build to what what do we share in common about uh, our values? Um, what about humanity do we think we have in common? Um, and once that's established, then maybe you can get into ideologies. But I really think that people have to learn how to see each other as people before they can have those discussions. Okay. Um, let me turn to Lori Mahoney, who... Among many titles, I'm just going to go with co-chair of Third Presbyterian Church Anti-Racism Task Group, co-chair of Rochester Clergy and Community United, Thank among you. many others. So how do you see this question of, 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 of kind of pulling people in, I guess? I, I don't think we're out to change people's hearts, and we may not but, do but that. Why, but why not? It would be lovely, but I, I really think the key to everything you know, you talk about anti-racism, DEI yeah. kinds of work, you know, equity, inclusion. It all starts with education. Our kids in schools, we didn't learn things. And we have been – and it's all coming to be known. And and it's truth. And we've been living through a number of political years of false truths. And it's easy to hang on to some of those. But when you really – learn and understand and also do some self-introspection, I think maybe you realize some of those things you heard are not really true. And so I, I just think it all starts with education okay. at all levels. And everyone's in a different place on their journey and, and bringing themselves, their biases, their different perspectives, yeah. what their parents taught them. But somehow it's all education. So in other words, tell me if I'm following this correctly, Lori. You're not sitting down with somebody saying, by the way, I'm here to change your mind. You sit down and say, let's, let's exchange views and information, and I want you to have certain information you may not have. I want you to see something. And then you, you let them take that on their own, as opposed to saying, I'm going to browbeat you into changing your mind. And you hope that by absorbing information they might not have previously held, that they can come to that on their own. Yeah? I hope so. And Ed with others. I mean, we gravitate toward like-minded folks, like-minded values um, uh, to sustain us, too. Um, but yes, they, they need some appetite, some interest in wanting to learn. You don't change anything until you want to do it. And change only occurs inside yourself. Yeah, there's um, – um, for a long time, I've followed the work of a guy by the name of Anthony Magnabosco, who, who just um, – he he calls himself a straight epistemologist, and he will talk to anyone about their beliefs if they want to. 
And he, he is very gentle, and he just simply asks them, you know, um, how firmly held is this belief? Like, how, how strongly are you convinced that what you believe is true? What would it take for this belief uh, to change for you? What would you need to understand for that to change? Is there anything that could change that? And if so, what is it? Those are really instructive questions. Um, because when people say, you know, no, well, nothing, nothing will change. Well, okay, then, um, then we are not really sort of having much of a conversation. It's probably not currently worth the effort. So if someone says the election was stolen and nothing will change my mind, nothing will change my mind. There's not much to work with there. But I don't think most people mean that. I think that they, what they're really saying is, I, I've seen enough evidence and I'm convinced this is true and I don't think there is evidence that could convince me. I think that's what they're saying. Because I think that most people would change their mind if they saw evidence that was convincing to them. It's a question of what is convincing and will they internalize it? And it's not always something people are willing to do in the moment, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You got it. Mm. What do you think, Monica? Yeah. Well, I, I like the idea of sitting down and asking questions. I think that's a great place to start. Why do you think the way you do? Or tell me what's behind this very strongly held belief of yours. And I think we often find with extremism that... People who are convinced or uh, they're absolutist about these ideas are coming from places of fear, genuine fear, whether that's a fear of replacement, uh, a fear of uh, economics, whatever it is, there's a fear of some kind of change that they're not going to be comfortable with in the future, however hypothetical that is or theoretical that is. And once you, um, once you identify what the fear is, I think that's also a really important place to, to generate some conversation from. Yeah. Before I take another phone call, you know, you heard Monica use the term fear of replacement. And if listeners are going... Well, if this is about replacement theory, that's absurd. Look, you may believe that. You may think this is absurd or this is just uh, something being used to, to create fear and to wield power. But if people have become convinced of something that is frightening to them, uh, it sort of doesn't matter if, it's a, if you think it's absurd. They think it's frightening. And um, you got to grapple with that in some way. So when it comes to something like replacement, which is what we heard in Charlottesville, right? Exactly. And we still hear it. Correct. Um, and we hear it from pop culture stars increasingly. It's becoming more normalized. You want to talk about the Overton window moving? I and mean, it's moving in, a, to me, my mind, a scary direction. Right. It's, the, it's out there. But what I don't hear Monica saying is, to, well, tell people it's stupid. <laughs> I mean, like, because you may think it is. Right. That's a great way to shut down conversation. Yeah. Right. I'll, but I also understand, um, Monica, I understand when people say, well, look, there should be certain lines that we do not cross, that we do not discuss, like that we like they're just anathema to modern society. And Evan, you shouldn't bring someone like this on your show. And there are certain lines that we don't do on the show. Mm -hmm. um, what I think has happened, and sometimes I think this is a bug of the left. I don't mean to overly generalize, but sometimes it's like, well, you can't even talk to that person or you can't talk about this because they have a view that is bad. Right. And the, the best thing is just ignore that. But I think that sort of allows it to sort of grow and kind of metastasize. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and people have also adopted a way of talking that really shuts down or silences other people. So um, I've noticed this is happening on social media more and more, but it's also happening in person. And you see people genuinely intending to have conversations that grow to this awful shouting match Ranker, and yeah. nothing is accomplished. It's yeah. really unfortunate. So we might need to, you know, you're talking about education. I think we do need to go back to just simply how to have dialogue. I just want to make a couple other points. I want to kick it over to Reverend Reader and then we're going to take your phone calls. But let me just say, People far more experienced and much more intelligent than me. We had a couple of gentlemen on this program recently from South Africa who were at the negotiating table um, over the very painful and long process that led to the end of apartheid. And they came on this program. They've spent the decades since now advising governments, social movements, people around the world on trying to solve what looks intractable. And uh, they were in Rochester and they came on this program and they said that when they first met each other, they admitted they um, sort of reflexively hated each other. Uh, as embarrassing as that may be to say now, that's how they felt. Now they are friends and they work together. They do not agree on everything. Of course not. No two human beings ever would. But they said that what is common in 
finding ways beyond what seems intractable is quelling the fear of retribution because there's power dynamics around the world. And change often involves a, 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 not always an elimination of power, a, a changing who has more power or the most power or all the power. And the fear comes, whether sort of overt or not, in this idea that, well, in that future, in that replace, the great replace, whatever, there's um, not only is that going to be bad for me, but I, there's re there's revenge coming, there's retribution. So they advise people around the world, you've got to try to take away the fear that others have of revenge, of retribution. That has to sort of be on the table. It's like there will not be retribution. Right. Um, and uh, I wonder how you feel about that, Monica. Well, I mean, it's nothing that anybody can promise, right? I mean, <laughs> when two individuals are speaking, you know, who would – who am I to say, you know, you, you shouldn't be afraid of, but, you know, show me where the facts are about, you know, your, your future and, and retribution actually happening. But, um, but I think just the act of listening to somebody who is acting or speaking in fear is in and of itself a way in to somebody's, for lack of a better word, somebody's heart. Um, uh, acknowledging the fear also uh, you know, again, you can't make any promises, but certainly just saying, okay, well, now I understand where you're coming from. Thank you so much for admitting and being vulnerable about your fear. So where can we move on from here? That's just a start. And Reverend Reader, I'm also thinking about I'm trying to head off the emails that I'm going to get today. You are certainly going to get a lot. <laughs> well, of I, yeah, we always do. But someone's going to probably people are emailing me right now saying, Oh, I get it, Evan. This is just a, a goal on your program to make every human being think the same way. And if, if people don't share the, the right beliefs, they have to be cast out and no one can have. I, I want to say, in case it's not clear enough, and if it's not clear enough, it's my fault as the host of this program. I really appreciate ideological diversity. I appreciate differences of political thought, views, opinions. Of course, I'm a human being with bias. Sometimes people are like, you should be more unbiased. And I'm like, I'm a human. Right. But, but what I try to be is self-aware of my biases, and I don't always do a good job. Sometimes I fail. I fail a lot. Um, but I don't want to create the idea that the goal of your program or even this radio program is to sort of scrub any disagreement. It's not about that. It is about understanding what is truly dangerous to this country, um, to people's existence. And I, I wonder if you want to add to that idea. Sure. I, I would suggest that really our work is more about offering an alternative narrative. People, people think, think in terms of stories, metaphors. That's how we think. That's how we, we act on the basis of what we deeply, what we've always heard uh, and what we, how we think the world works. Um, so what, I, what people who are in the Christian nationalist movement um, share is a certain narrative about how the world works. Or in the broader New Right movement, uh, Catherine used that, that term, in, in that broader movement, uh, power over other people. There's, a, there's only a certain amount of power in this world, and if you have it, then I have less. That's one of the narratives that really is at the core of the whole movement. And so it, can we offer another narrative about how power is uh, not finite, that indeed we can have... Share, we can share power over our lives together. We can learn how to live together in a, in a different kind of a way. And so I think what we're really, uh, education, but, but perhaps a unique kind of an education, offering a different kind of narrative it's that, that would, that it might in, invite people to see the world differently and thereby make new decisions. That's well said. When listeners heard me say to Lori, well, if you're not trying to convince someone's mind, why not? That's not an implication that that's sort of my habit, either on the show or even in my life. There are times where I will sit down with friends and say, I would like to change your mind, but I'm open to my mind being changed too. I promise you every conversation I have, my mind is open to being changed. Um, you will not have me shut out. We can talk about anything. I don't believe in third rails. I think we can talk about anything. And we have to try to do that. So... I know. It's a little squishy. I'll get emails from all directions on this, but that's all right. Uh, back to the phones we go, and I think this is Barry in Brighton first. Hi, Barry. Go ahead. Hello. My name is Barry Swan. Um, I am on the board of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, 
And this is a rather central issue for us. We've actually had Catherine Stewart as a speaker for us um, about 10 years ago. Um, people who are interested in dealing with uh, this issue should get in touch with us at, at aurochester.org. Um, if you want to become uh, a part of this uh, attempt to keep church and state separate, I'm also president of the Interfaith Alliance of Rochester, and uh, the one representation I can make from them was they would have a new commandment, thou shalt not use your religion as an excuse to take away other people's rights. And uh, I think that uh, uh, the Interfaith Alliance would definitely agree with that. We are very supportive of Catherine Stewart and hope that other people in the Rochester area will join this cause. Barry, thank you. Um, you're smiling, Lori. This is a oh, hi, Barry. Here. Yes, <laughs> good, good to hear your voice, Barry. And I, I expect to see you on the twelfth. I, I will definitely be there, and I will bring as many people as I can. It's Tremendous. great that you're bringing Catherine Stewart to Rochester. Thank you very much. You Bar got it, Barry. Thank you. And by the way, keep emailing me and keep um, keep pushing me. Uh, sometimes Barry's a, a somewhat frequent emailer and a really um, kind and, and smart person. I appreciate that. Thank you, Barry. Um, let me get Matt in Canandaigua next. Hi, Matt. Go ahead. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. I wanted to bring something up in terms of uh, the uh, people being replaced. Something that I've found kind of effective is generally most people are relatively smart enough to understand certain things. And what, what I've been using to kind of make people scratch their head at it is using our age demographics and showing them the baby boomers, you know, their, their population and how many of them are at retiring or at retirement age compared to Generation Z, the replacement workforce, and how little of them there are. And it kind of makes them, instead of telling them that they're being xenophobic or racist, they look at it as more of a, like a mathematical problem where they can see, oh, wait, we actually, they, I mean, they don't come out and say this, and I, but you can kind of see the gears turning in their head because it's a different message that they're hearing. Because I think everyone knows that the baby boomers are a very large age demographic, and the young generation, there is not very many of them. Hmm. Uh, Matt, interesting perspectives. Uh, Lori, what do you think about that? Hmm. Well, I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> um, I, that is interesting. I've not thought of it that way at all. That's an interesting perspective. Thank you. Monica, anything to add? Yeah, I, I'm going to push back just a little bit. Um, I'm thinking about Nick Fuentes, who runs the America First podcast, and he's 21. He, he's what? He's 21. That's how old he is? I think so. Oh um, God, at least according Lord. to my latest notes. Okay. Um, right. And so it <laughs> puts a spin on things, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I, if he isn't, then I, I certainly wouldn't oh, categorize, categorize him as a baby boomer. Oh, God, goodness. No, no, no. He's young. Um, he's young. And he does have quite a following of young folks, yeah, um, Gen Xers, millennials. Um, and I think of people who are identifying with uh, extremist groups like the Groypers or um, America First or the American Identity Movement, uh, you know, people who are saying, yay is right, convince me otherwise. You know, these are people on campuses. So I'm not sure necessarily uh, I go categorizing the majority of, of uh, people who hold those views as as older necessarily, but maybe there is something to be said for um, looking at age demographics and, you know, both sides of it, the youngest and, and the oldest. Maybe there's there's something to that. I'd love to look more into that. Yeah. Uh, Reverend, what do you think? The last uh, statistics that I heard, there are more millennials than there are boomers. Now, it's a large generation, so it's not just that, that boomers make up the most number of people at all. And I also don't think it's a an age issue. I, I really do... The, the key word in Catherine Stewart's uh, title of her book is power. And that's what this is all about. And replacement theory comes out of the idea that, uh, that there are people who have had, been in power and they feel like they're losing their power. In this country, historically, 
that was white and male. So white men, young white men, are feeling like they're being replaced. They're losing the power that they thought they would inherit. And I think that that's a, I think that's a, a generational issue as well. Um, by the way, Nick Fuentes is only 24. Oh, he's 24. Close enough. <laughs> there we are. Yeah, yeah, 24. He's not, I mean, he's 24. That's what he is. Uh, so, the youngin. Yes. Um, I hope nobody leaves this program like, I should go look up Nick Fuentes. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I would advise not. Um, <laughs> Don says, uh, Evan, I think I'd say that the reason that we didn't want religion in schools was because we didn't want the state teaching values, mostly because we don't all agree on what values we should be teaching. But I see schools teaching values all the time. Schools teach anti-racism, for example. I guess I don't see why people who don't share those values are touchy about it, why they might fight to have, quote, their values taught instead. Reverend Reader, I'll start with you. What would you say to Don? Well, I come from uh, the traditional Baptist uh, viewpoint that the separation of church and state is is fundamental to our democracy. And now it's being... um, questioned by the right, by the Christian nationalists. Um, the separation of church and state is not about values. It's about religion. Very specifically, our, the founders of this country were, came, out of a, came out of the European history of religion, even Protestant, Catholic, and various forms of Protestantism, all fighting one another, literally, and killing one another. And the founders of this nation said, we don't want any of that. So we don't want religion uh, being the deciding, the b- being in charge of uh, our country, whether the governance of the country itself or the education of our children and so forth. So it's it's not you can't teach without values. I I don't think. I mean, values. Everybody has values. It's not a matter of a difference in values. We don't. The separation of church and state is about one religion um, being able to make the decisions for everybody else in the country. Is that a fair description, Monica, in your mind? Absolutely. And I'll add to that. When I think about education, I think about um, having been an educator in in secondary ed. I feel like, you know, we send kids to school hoping that they eventually become a version of their best selves, right? And it's nearly impossible to teach something like English language arts without having some discussion about values, right? So... Um, you know, more and more we see school boards being um, becoming these battlegrounds. And I, I hate to say this, but uh, the word weaponized. Um, but, it, you know, critical race theory is becoming weaponized um, across the country in these school boards as doublespeak for please don't teach my children a version of history that threatens me or, or my worldview. Um, so, uh, you know, what to do about it, I don't know. Uh, but certainly, again, I think <laughs> people are coming to to meetings with uh, fear again, fear of certain books being taught uh, because they teach values. Uh, you know, it's it's very unfortunate, right? Lori, what would you say then if if Don's response was okay? If we're admitting that schools, you know, that uh, do have choices to make about values or teach values that um, some Americans are saying, well, I don't like the values you're teaching, and I want you to teach my values, and I want to say in that. Well, I think a common denominator in terms of a value is to support right versus wrong, to support um, goodness versus hatred. I mean, I think those are some real common denominators there. I don't think those are values. Um, I think that's just North Compass kinds of stuff as a human being. Um I, I believe in the sum of all of us. I don't believe in either or. It's both and in, in my worldview. And I would hope that our kids are learning that. I would also add that anti-racism is not being taught in the schools. Uh, I was at a school board meeting the other night. Uh, some curricula here locally and in Monroe County, only uh, 16 of 20 districts have picked up some of it, maybe for one grade level. And it's not happening right now. And it's not critical race theory. That's a legal term. Um, right. exactly. So I think anti-racism stuff mm-hmm. needs to be taught in the schools. Um, it's, it's just a matter of do you treat people 
well as you would want to be treated. It's very simple stuff. I think it's it's just very complicated today after these last political years. I will say that when you spoke earlier about what is taught or not taught and what we are educated on or not educated on, um, the kinds of stuff like Justin Murphy's book that came out last year, I think would be a mm -hmm. wonderful addition to any school. My son's definitely going to read it. Yeah. It's one of the most valuable books I've ever read on r local Rochester history. Um, and uh, But I also feel like, well, that would just get... Well, that's critical race theory. I don't mean to laugh because like this is serious, but it, it gets exasperating because what are we actually talking about here? You know, and and I think that's part of Monica's point. Like, what what do we what do we really mean when we say certain terms? Anyway, it's all part of a discussion. Don, I always appreciate the correspondence. Thank you. And as we get ready to wrap, thirty seconds, I'm going to send it over to Reverend Jimmy Reader to tell you again what's coming up Sunday, March twelfth. Uh, Sunday, March twelfth, Third Presbyterian Church on Meg Street. Uh, you can go to the to the Third Presbyterian Church website and look up events and find this March 12th event. Scroll down. There's there's the registration link. It there's no cost, but we do need the registration so we can you know be sure we have room for everybody. Um, Catherine Stewart will speak, and there'll be time for a Q and A, and uh, probably a little bit of time at the end to mix and mingle a little bit and get to know her. Catherine is an investigative journalist and the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. We appreciate her time on the program earlier this hour, as we do Reverend Rebecca Seegers, pastor and head of staff at Third Presbyterian Church in Rochester. And to our guests in studio, um, from not only their various community positions, but Rock Q, Rochester Clergy and Community United, Reverend Jimmy Reader, Monica Gabell, and Lori Mahoney. Thank you all for being here this hour. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Uh, more information, by the way, in the event, if you're interested, listeners, we'll post it on our podcast page later today, wxxinews.org slash connections. From Megan and Evan and Rob, thank you for listening. Great having you. We are back with you tomorrow on member-supported public radio. <laughs>